This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week we'll start out at the Times of Israel website, and we will just float around with the latest news from Israel, United States, and around the world. The first story in obituary, Rabbi Aidan Steinsaltz, who made the Talmud accessible, dies at 83, by Marissa Newman. Rabbi Aidan Evan Yisrael Steinsaltz, whose transition and groundbreaking commentary of the entire Babylonian Talmud and Bible has been lauded for making the ancient Jewish texts approachable, died Friday at the age of 83. A longtime educator, prolific author of over 60 books, and Israel Prize laureate, Steinsaltz, who years ago switched to a Hebraicized version of his surname, Evan Israel, but never shook off the original, was also a physicist and chemist, a biting social critic, and a beloved public figure in Israel, revered for his encyclopedic mind and admired for his down-to-earth and kindly bearing. His first name means gentle in Hebrew, and by all accounts he was. But Steinsalt's crowning achievement was indisputably the 45-year project of democratizing the 1,500-year-old corpus of rabbinic Jewish law, a feat that saw Time magazine in 2001 declare him a once-in-a-millennium scholar. It earned him comparisons to the 11th-century French sage Rashi, whose commentary on most of the Talmud and Bible was unmatched in terms of the scope of texts it covered for 1,000 years. Steinsaltz's formidable effort began in 1965, when he was just 27, three years after he became Israel's youngest ever school principal. He completed it in 2010, when he was 72 to 73 years old. Since I started the work at a relatively young age, obviously I didn't take into account the immense effort it requires, which includes not only the work of researching and writing, but also many logistical problems, he told the Yidiot Ahronot Daily in 2009. But sometimes when a person knows too much, it causes him to do nothing, Stein Saltz mused, adding that it seems it's better sometimes for man, as for humanity, not to know too much about the difficulties and believe more in the possibilities. When he completed, in 2010, his 41-volume translation of the Talmud into modern Hebrew, with a running commentary which has since been translated into English, it was hailed as a revolutionary feat making the largely Aramaic, often obscure text accessible, furthering its reach and encouraging deeper study. But like any good Jewish literary rabbinical product worth its salt, it was not without its raging critics, its furious bands, its Talmud-like head-shaking, finger-wagging, and nitpicking along the way. Ultra-Orthodox Lithuanian rabbis, led by the late Rabbi Elazar Shach, banned the series outright, citing its contents, its change of format from the traditional layout, and what was derided as a simplification of the foundational text of all Jewish oral law. Still endorsed by the U.S.-based late Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, Steinsaltz's translation was also reportedly applauded by the Gur Hasidic sect. 
Former Sephardic Chief Rabbi Shlomo Amar praised its capacity to expand the borders of holiness to encompass those not well-versed in Talmud, but fretted that its ease of use would contribute to the dying out of ancient methods of study among yeshiva students and runs counter to the edict to toil in the study of Torah. Steinsaltz, he and others argued, just made the infamously rigorous discipline too darn easy. There is no laziness like intellectual laziness, Amar told the ultra-Orthodox Paul called Barama radio station in 2009, lamenting the resorting to easy commentaries by yeshiva students. The Steinsaltz edition also met with some academic criticism, namely by Jacob Neusner, an American scholar at Bard College. Steinsaltz's was not the first translation of the Babylonian Talmud, but as the first into modern Hebrew, with his own phrase-by-phrase commentary appearing alongside medieval commentaries Rashi and Tosafot, it caused the greatest stir. In interviews, Steinsaltz countered that much of the Haredi criticism stemmed from opposition among the ultra-Orthodox to the Chabad Lubavitch community, with which he was affiliated rather than to his work. Traditional study of Talmud, he insisted, is bogged down by technical details that keep students from plumbing its depths. My translation not only doesn't reduce the Gemara, but rather, in a certain sense, it allows for greater in-depth study and advancement, he told Yidioth over a decade ago. In the end, my explanations primarily try to resolve the technical problems, the language difficulties, the associative problems, the problems that stem from the fact that the Talmud is not an organized text with a gradual build-up, Unfortunately, many times the traditional method of study dedicates so much time to overcoming the technical problems that in practice there is not much time left for in-depth and innovative study. In 2016, the Logophile, who expertly dotted the 2.5 million unpunctuated Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, Aramaic words in the 6,000 pages of the Babylonian Talmud, lost his capacity to speak after suffering a stroke his, told, his son told the Makor Rishon newspaper in 2018. He continued to work proofreading and marking up his previous work while silently signaling to his son to convey his edits. Steinsaltz is survived by his wife, three children, and numerous grandchildren. Born in Jerusalem in 1937 to a secular communist family, Steinsaltz was raised in the Kataman neighborhood, not far from his contemporaries, Israeli authors Amos Oz and A.B. Yehoshua. Though his father was not interested in religion, he sought out a tutor to teach the young Steinsaltz the Talmud, insisting, the rabbi has recalled in slightly different formulations over the years, that while he was free to be a non-believer, no family member of mine will be an Am Haaretz, an ignoramus. After choosing to attend a religious high school, Steinsaltz adopted Orthodox Jewish observance and later became a dedicated follower of the leader of the Chabad Lubavitch movement, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. In the merging of his quintessentially Zionist upbringing in pre-state Israel with his love for the Talmud, Steinsaltz discovered a language of caustic debate and lucid reasoning that he hoped would someday be integrated into Israeli culture. The Talmud is the book of sanity 
and when you study it, it confers a certain amount of sanity, he told the Times of Israel in 2012, suggesting that the most fanatical rabbis are rarely great Talmudists. After all, the Gemara consists mainly of logical and rational back-and-forth discussions about legal issues aimed at arriving at a factual truth, he pointed out. What could be more sane than that? It was a big mistake to make the education in Israel based so much on the Bible, Steinsalt said, because the Bible was written by prophets. If you read the Bible, you somehow become in your mind a little prophet. That's the way in which Israelis speak to each other. They don't have conversations. They all have complete and unlimited knowledge. Learning Talmud would bring a big change to the Israeli mind because it deals with and is connected to dialectic. The founder of a network of yeshivas in Israel and the former Soviet Union, Steinsaltz was also active in outreach to Jews beyond the Iron Curtain. In 1989, when he founded a yeshiva in Moscow, it became the first state-sanctioned institution of Jewish study in the city in 60 years, according to JTA. From 2004, he also served as the head of a nascent right-wing Israeli movement to revive the Sanhedrin, or Supreme Religious Tribunal, though he resigned in 2008. In his later years, even as his books were translated into numerous languages, selling millions of copies worldwide, and as he wrapped up his Bible commentary, Steinsaltz was still daunted by the work that remained unfinished. In one of his final interviews in 2016 to the Ben-Gurion University periodical Israelis, he mused, I never thought about what will be written on my tombstone. It doesn't really preoccupy me, but I am concerned by what will be remembered. I did something, but I didn't do enough. I didn't even do a fraction of the things I wanted to do. I wrote such and such books. Very nice. I gave such and such lectures. Very nice. I wrote articles like sand on the seashore. It's not enough. What would I have wanted to do? I would want to leave behind a small tree that will grow. I will tell you a final story, he continued. In my garden years ago, I planted two cypress trees. One was stolen and the other was a small cypress whose head was shorn off. I simply had mercy on it. I took its head and taped it to the still fresh trunk. I didn't do anything else. I let it grow. I hoped the fissure would heal. Today that cypress is almost three meters tall, a mighty tree. That's what I would have wanted to have done, to plant a small cypress, even one that was chopped, that will grow into a large tree. And next from the Times of Israel, Minister, I've been offered everything to ditch Gantz, form narrow government by Times of Israel staff. Communications Minister Yoaz Hendel claimed on Friday that he's been offered everything to abandon the blue and white-led bloc in the unity government and join a narrow right-wing government led solely by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as talk of a fourth consecutive election continued to escalate. Hendel heads Derek Eretz, a right-leaning faction of two MKs who joined the government together with blue and white chairman Benny Gantz. Before Gantz and Netanyahu signed a coalition deal earlier this year, Hendel said the Likud leader's people had offered him and fellow faction member Tzvi Hauser various senior posts in order to abandon Gantz and join a narrow right-wing government. The Derech Eretz leader ultimately refused, asserting that a broad unity government was what the country needed most. 
In a Facebook post on Friday, Handel revealed that such offers were again being made by uh, with Netanyahu apparently uh, refused to budge from his insistence on passing a budget that only covers the rest of 2020, despite signing a coalition deal with Gantz that envisioned the budget through 2021. I oppose breaking agreements that have been signed, Hendel wrote. I will not give a hand to a narrow government, as I have not given in the past, no matter what they offer me, and have already offered me everything. Failure to pass the budget by August 25th will trigger automatic elections in November, in what would be the fourth round of voting in less than two years. Amid deep distrust between the two parties, Gantz has vowed not to back down from his demand for a two-year budget, as stipulated by the coalition agreement. In seeking to renege on his coalition deal with Gantz and pass only a budget for the remainder of the current year, Netanyahu has been citing the uncertainty created by the coronavirus crisis, but many see it as a way for him to back out of the power-sharing arrangement he signed with Gantz, who is slated to take over the premiership late next year. The State of Israel needs a stable government that respects coalition agreements and a budget longer than two months, Hendel wrote. Anything else would be irresponsible. Polls show Gantz's party plummeting to single digits as blue and white licks its wounds, resulting from joining a Netanyahu-led government despite vowing repeatedly throughout three campaigns never to do so. But Likud is also hemorrhaging support, with a Thursday poll showing the party dropping from its current 36 seats to 29 in a sign of the public's dissatisfaction of Netanyahu's handling of the pandemic. However, surveys still indicate that the right-wing religious parties would near the long-coveted 61-seat majority, with the Likud remaining the largest party. The premier is believed to prefer such a scenario, hoping that the government would then be able to pass legislation granting him immunity from the criminal proceedings that are set to restart in January. Repeated polls have also indicated that Derech Eretz would fail to cross the electoral threshold. Hendel said that he was not worried and that his slate will be here in the next round as well. However, he asserted that during an economic crisis with one million people unemployed, the task of the government is to care, to take care of the public's interest, not its political interest. I do not intend to sit still and watch personal interests outweigh national interests, he added, in an apparent shot at Netanyahu. Separately on Friday, Hebrew media reported that not a single item was put on the government's agenda for Sunday's cabinet meeting, further fueling election speculation. Not since the current unity government was formed, and probably not for years, has no item been put on the agenda this late in the week, according to the reports. Channel 12 reported that prominent strategic advisor Moshe Klughaft had joined Netanyahu's team in addition to his political team. There were also reports that Netanyahu's Facebook election chatbot had resumed its operations, but the Netanyahu campaign said they were old messages and the chatbot had never been disabled. If fresh elections are called, they would be the fourth since April 2019. The previous three rounds of elections ended inconclusively, but Gantz and Netanyahu agreed on a power-sharing deal after the vote in March. The deal split blue and white due to the party's campaign pledge not to join a government led by the premier because of his indictment on graft charges. 
while Netanyahu has to hand over the premiership to Gantz if he calls new elections before the blue and white chief takes over as prime minister in November 2021. The coalition deal made an exception for a failure to pass a budget, leading to speculation the Likud leader was forcing the budget crisis to avoid having to leave office. And next from the Times of Israel, 3,000 protest in latest anti-Netanyahu rally outside his home by Anat Peled. Some 3,000 people protested against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu outside his official residence in Jerusalem on Friday evening, the latest in a series of demonstrations calling on him to quit. Recent weeks have seen near-daily demonstrations against Netanyahu due to his criminal indictment for corruption and to protest his handling of the coronavirus and accompanying economic crisis. Friday saw organizers trial a system to gauge how many people were at the rallies, handing out white bracelets to all participants in a bid to show that attendance was larger than officially reported. Last Saturday's protest, which was the largest anti-Netanyahu Jerusalem demonstration to date, saw an estimated 10,000 people, according to the Israeli police. However, protest organizers claimed that the actual numbers ranged between 15 and 30,000 people. According to the number of white bracelets that were handed out, there were over 3,000 people here, and no reporter or police can deny this, announced an organizer on the central stage during Friday's protest, to loud applause. The weekly Friday protests, which are called Kabbalat Shabbat, tend to attract more young families than the larger Saturday night protests, which have frequently seen clashes between protesters and police. Friday's gathering had a carnival atmosphere with many wearing costumes. These included clouds holding up a sign reading Who is the Court Jester, and an Israeli Statue of Liberty holding up a torch reading Hope. There were also several people dressed up as aliens in response to Netanyahu's son Yair, who during a radio interview Monday dismissed the protesters by calling them aliens. He then partially walked back the description while his father endorsed it. Toward the end of the protest, organizers tried to hold a parade outside the closed-off junction of Gaza and Balfour streets, but were stopped by police. We are going to walk on the sidewalk so we don't block the road, and circle the square and Balfour for Kabbalat Shabbat, announced one of the organizers on stage. Hundreds of protesters attempted to leave the blocked-off area, but were prevented from doing so by police. Although some protesters shouted shame at the police, the incident ended without confrontation. The protesters, who included a large number of older people and children, peacefully dispersed around 7 p.m. Also Friday, the Jerusalem municipality cleared a protest camp in the nearby Independence Park, saying protesters had violated an agreement to remain in a specific area set aside for them. A much larger protest is expected Saturday night in Jerusalem, along with black flag demonstrations on over 260 bridges and intersections across the country. Protesters have long been holding regular rallies outside the Prime Minister's residence on Balfour Street, as well as in Tel Aviv and other areas, calling on the Premier to resign due to his indictment on corruption charges. They have been joined in recent weeks by people protesting the government's economic policies during the coronavirus pandemic, with crowds in the thousands and rising. Netanyahu is on trial for a series of cases in which he allegedly received lavish gifts from billionaire friends and traded regulatory favors with media moguls for more favorable coverage of himself himself 
and his family. The Prime Minister has denied any wrongdoing, accusing the media and law enforcement of a witch hunt to oust him from office. And next from the Times of Israel, Palestinians say 23-year-old woman killed during clashes with IDF by Aaron Boxerman. Palestinian officials said a 23-year-old woman was shot and killed during clashes Friday between hundreds of demonstrators and Israeli forces in the West Bank city of Jenin. The Palestinian health ministry identified the woman as Dalia Ahmad Suleiman Samudi and said she had been hit by live Israeli bullets. The ministry said she was taken to a local hospital where she died of bullet wounds. The IDF, which entered the Al-Jabiriyat neighborhood in Jenin to arrest a local Palestinian before dawn on suspicion of terror activities, denied using live fire in the incident and said there had been gunfire from the Palestinian side. During normal activity tonight in Jenin, violent riots erupted in which hundreds of Palestinians participated, an IDF spokesman told the Times of Israel. They added that IDF troops used normal methods of crowd dispersion, which did not include live fire. Such riot dispersion methods often include rubber-tipped bullets and tear gas. According to the IDF, Palestinians had used live fire and thrown stones and explosive devices while clashing with soldiers. According to a local correspondent for official Palestine TV, Samudi did not participate in the clashes. Rather, she was attempting to close the window of her apartment to protect her child from tear gas when she, tear gas when she was shot by a stray bullet. The Hamas terror group spokesman, Hazim Kasim, called, called Samudi's death an execution by Israel and vowed revenge. Our people's response to these crimes, as always, will be one of renewed resistance action and continued intifada. Only revolutionary action can restrain the occupation, Kasim said. Israeli forces often conduct search, uh, search and arrest operations in Palestinian areas to detain suspects for interrogation. The IDF conducted 261 such actions in July alone, according to UN data, detaining hundreds of Palestinians. Later Friday, hundreds of local Janine residents carried Sambudi's th uh, body through the streets of the city as part of a funeral procession. And next from the Times of Israel, back from New York, Danny Dayan losing sleep over future of Israel-Diaspora relations by Rafael Aron. Exactly one week after the October 27, 2018 Pittsburgh synagogue shooting that killed 11 people, the city's Jewish community gathered at Rodef Shalom Temple to commemorate the tragic event, the deadliest attack on American Jewry in history. It was a very long service with many speeches, recalled Danny Diane, who served as Israel's Consul General to New York at the time. Since he was also accredited to Pennsylvania, he headed to, he headed to the site of the massacre shortly after the terrible news broke. My week in Pittsburgh after the shooting was the strongest, most difficult experience I had in America by far. But the memorial service held in a Reformed synagogue left him somewhat encouraged. I don't know if it was spontaneous or not, but it ended with one anthem, and that anthem was Hatikva. You can say a thousand times that American Jews are disconnected from Israel. If in their most painful moment they end their service with Hatikva, there is no disconnection here. Still, Diane is extremely worried about current trends, he says, indicate that Israel and diaspora Jews may soon stop caring about each other. 
If we don't deal with these trends and create a cross-responsibility, where Israelis care about Israel, but also about world Jewry, and world Jewry cares about itself, but also about Israel, then the disconnect will happen, he warned. Having concluded a four-year term as Israel's top diplomat in the Big Apple, Diane landed in Israel on Monday and is currently quarantined at his home in the West Bank, settlement of Ma'ale Shomron. In a wide-ranging interview conducted via Zoom, he talked about the deep cultural and ethnic differences between Israeli and American Jews and how they can be bridged, about Israel's struggle to engage with progressive politicians in the U.S., and about his own personal ambitions for the future. In 2015, his diplomatic career got off to a rocky start when the Brazilian government refused to accept him as Israeli ambassador due to his past as chairman of the Yesha Council pro-settlements advocacy group, due to his right-wing views, including vehement opposition to a two-state solution, many liberal American Jews were initially wary of his appointment to the New York Post. But with his charming outspokenness, his surprising liberalism regarding issues such as LGBTQ rights or social or religious pluralism, and his willingness to engage with nearly all sectors of society, Diane won over most of his critics. No other Israeli diplomat in recent memory was showered with as many accolades by so many different communities upon leaving a posting. Bronx Borough President Ruben Diaz Jr., for instance, proclaimed July 7, 2020, to be Ambassador Danny Diane Day. Not only was Diane expected to be a terrible fit for New York on its own, but his appointment was widely seen as a political consolation prize for having been refused credentials as Israel's ambassador to Brazil by the then-leftist administration in Brasilia, Abe Silberstein wrote in the foreword. Yet, Diane is leaving as a success. Why and how this happened goes a long way toward explaining the predicament of liberal and progressive Jews as Israel, a country in which they have been invested all their lives, descends further into what few on the left are still loath to call an apartheid reality. Before becoming an ambassador, Diane had unsuccessfully tried to enter the Knesset. He ascribes his failure in politics to the clash between his hawkish views on diplomatic security matters and his otherwise liberal values calling himself a political orphan. While still unwilling to rule out trying his hand at politics in the future, his time in America, besides New York and Pennsylvania, he was also responsible for New Jersey, Delaware, and Ohio, and spent considerable time in Puerto Rico and became the first Israeli diplomat to visit the U.S. Virgin Islands, Diane now sees strengthening Israel-Diaspora relations as his most important mission. He currently has no concrete plans, he insisted, but in the future he would like to work for closer relations between the Jewish state and world Jewry as chairman of the Jewish Agency or Israeli Minister for Diaspora Affairs. I returned from New York with these beliefs much stronger. It's now in my kishkes, in my blood, he said. The apathy that many in Israel have toward world Jewry is insulting. We are today the big brother. Diane, who was born and raised in a Zionist family in Buenos Aires, said he is not worried about tomorrow's headline about this or that crisis in diaspora relations. There are crises. That's not what bothers me. What keeps me awake at night, literally sometimes, is the long-term future of our relationship. And my fear is that in the 21st century, 
the two large Jewish communities will split into two different groups, or worse, that one of them may disappear. It's not something that can't happen. The Jewish people underwent such processes in the past. Diane, a secular Jew, said he frequently asks himself if our generation has a special mitzvah. In the 1940s, American Jews had the obligation to rescue their European brethren from the Holocaust. The following generation had the special mitzvah to save Soviet and Ethiopian Jewry. What about us? BDS is surely not our special mitzvah, he said, referring to the anti-Israel boycott, divestments, uh, divestment, and sanction movement. Combating anti-Semitism should not be underestimated, but that's not our overarching mission either, he surmised. Rather, today's Jews have two special mitzvahs, to guarantee the security and thriving of the State of Israel and to safeguard the continued existence of Jewish communities around the world, he posited. I'm worried by the trend that each of the two large Jewish communities would choose only one mitzvah, that Israeli Jews would choose only Israel and American Jews would care only about their own continuity. If that happens, that's a tragedy. I will do everything I can to stop that from happening. Education is key to countering these worrying trends, Diane said. Israel's Minister for Diaspora Affairs, Omer Yankolevich, uh, should devote a substantial part of her budget to educate Israelis about the importance of caring about our brethren across the ocean, he said. Yes, I am my brother's keeper, he declared. I'm not talking about the government. I'm talking about civil society. They're not interested in the American Jewish community unless something like Pittsburgh happens, and that's not enough. On the other side of the pond, the situation is not much better, with many Jewish parents unwilling or unable to provide their children with a Jewish education, Diane lamented. He recalled hosting a reform rabbi in his office who complained that he cannot afford to send his three children to Jewish schools. The high cost of a Jewish education is not the only problem American, uh, American Jews face, but it's the most acute one, he said. American Jews know a great deal about Israelis and the challenges they face, but I don't think they understand our way of thinking, our way of making decisions, he said. To remedy that situation, it might be a good idea for U.S. Jewish organizations to stop inviting Tzipi Livni and Michael Oren as keynote speakers, and start hosting Orthodox politicians like Aryeh Derry, Moshe Gafni, and Betzalel Smotrich instead, he said. Wouldn't the extremist views espoused by these people further alienate American Jews? Of course that danger exists, he replied. But also voices in the American Jewish community, Seth Rogen being the last one, but also Peter Beinart and many others alienated Israelis. We are different. We are very different. There is no point in hiding. Israelis had to build a sovereign Jewish state from scratch while Jews in America needed to blend in with an existing society, Diane went on. The two groups had to develop completely different strategies to succeed, which led to the development of different character traits and values. For Israelis, the most important Jewish value is Shivat Zion, the return to the ancient homeland which causes some to look upon their co-religionists in the diaspora with disdain. For American Jews, on the other hand, the supreme principle is tikkun olam, making the world a better place. We're also different ethnically, the outgoing diplomat continued, noting that Israeli Jews are 50% Sephardic and Mizrahi, 
while the American Jewish community is 95% Ashkenazi. We bring with us different legacies, different traditions, different forms of thought from our respective origins, he added. Despite all differences, Israelis and diaspora Jews must maintain the bond. It's not easy, it's a challenge, but it's necessary. Otherwise, we'll become the state of the Israelis and no longer the state of the Jews, and I am not ready to accept that. Among pro-settlement activists, the secular Diane has always been somewhat of a rarity. As a diplomat, he continued to criticize the lack of religious pluralism in Israel. The fact that Israeli ministers don't visit reform and conservative synagogues is extremely problematic, he said. At the same time, he also reserved some harsh criticism for the U.S. reform movement for its dovish positions on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, such as opposing the move of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. One of their huge mistakes is that they haven't decided whether they are a religious denomination or a political group, Diane said. Mixing religion with politics is detrimental mostly for the movement itself, as it precludes potential Israeli allies on the right from in Israel from supporting them. I failed to convince them to make their politics in different organizations, Diane said. Some of the political moves the reform movement did regarding Israel were a shot in the foot, if not higher than that. Diane was hesitant to discuss Israeli politics, but offered that he was not worried about the Jewish state becoming a wedge issue in American partisan politics. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's close alignment with U.S. President Donald Trump did not cause significant harm to bipartisan support for Israel, he posited. Israel has a very clear strategy to have an uh, as intimate as possible a relationship with any American administration. I have no doubt that if Secretary Hillary Clinton had been elected president, Israel would have acted in exactly the same way. It would have made a concerted effort to have as intimate a relationship with the administration as possible. Diane acknowledged that progressive forces within the Democratic Party are hostile to Israel, but argued that their opposition to the Jewish state has nothing to do with its government policies. There's no point in trying to convince them. They will not be satisfied until Israel disappears from the map. Yes, there are those sectors. We see it on campus. We see it in politics. It's a problem. I am not underestimating it, but to generalize and to say we cannot maintain a dialogue with a progressive is a total mistake. Of course, Israel can and should do more to reach out to left-wing Americans, he said, but it's not a lost battle. As a case in point, Diane cites this week's Democratic primaries for New York's 15th district, which is located in the South Bronx. It's probably the poorest district in New York State. There are virtually no Jews there. Five of the six candidates were progressive, and five out of the six, including the winner, are pro-Israel. In the likely, uh, the likely future congressman, Richie Torres, an Afro-Latino gay man in his early 30s, is staunchly supportive of the Jewish state, Diane said, noting that he had been engaging with him before Tuesday's ballot. I sincerely believe that Israel should be a progressive cause in American politics. It has all the merits to be a progressive cause. And next, Jewish groups protest Trump's Germany envoy pick for remarks on Nazi history. By Ron Campeas, Washington, JTA. Jewish groups are taking aim at President Donald Trump's pick for ambassador to Germany for his past statements about Muslim immigrants and for downplaying the importance of Nazi history. 
the nomination of Douglas McGregor, a decorated combat veteran who now frequently appears on Fox News, made headlines this week after CNN's K-File unearthed the long history of the retired colonel's comments. In 2018, he said there's sort of a sick mentality that says that generations after generations must atone for what happened in 13 years of German history and ignore the other 1,500 years of Germany. He also called Muslim immigrants invaders who want to turn Europe into an Islamic state and called for martial law at the U.S.-Mexico border, saying U.S. authorities should shoot people if necessary to prevent immigrants from entering the country. Prior to the CNN report, B'nai B'rith International had already expressed concerns about McGregor. In a July 28 release, it noted his past propensity to insinuate that neocons serving Israel's interests were controlling U.S. foreign policy. It is important that American diplomats not question the patriotism of other Americans who hold political views different from their own, especially given that questioning Jewish loyalty to America is an anti-Semitic trope, B'nai B'rith said. The American Jewish Committee on Friday urged Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to withdraw McGregor's nomination. It is because of our intensive engagement with Germany that we were so troubled by the reports of recent days regarding Colonel McGregor's many incendiary comments over the years about the German government, Germany's confrontation with its Nazi past, the NATO alliance, immigration policy, and other topics, AJC CEO David Harris said in a letter to Pompeo. The Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said on Twitter that some of McGregor's past statements were bigoted and abhorrent. He also criticized McGregor's comments on Nazi Germany. We respect retired Colonel McGregor's military service, but this bigotry and xenophobia is abhorrent. Also, there are six million reasons why those years of German history cannot be ignored. A U.S. ambassador must respect the past to represent America in the future, Jonathan Greenblatt tweeted. J Street Vice President Dylan Williams on the same platform decried McGregor's shameful record of expressing profoundly bigoted views. And next from the Times of Israel, an op-ed by David Harwitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Times of Israel. Two-State Solution, the Worst and Only Way to Solve Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. From the left, Israel is increasingly being told by opponents, critics, and self-styled supporters at home and abroad that it has wrecked its foundational commitment to maintaining both a Jewish majority and a democracy by expanding the settlement enterprise deep and wide across the West Bank. Since it can no longer disentangle itself from the Palestinians and has thus destroyed the option of the two-state solutions on whose basis Jewish statehood was revived, it has no choice now but to consent to a kind of sovereign suicide and usher in a single binational state between the river and the sea in which a higher Arab birth rate means Jews will become an increasingly small minority as the decades pass. From the right, here and overseas, by contrast, Israel is loudly encouraged to expand its presence still farther into biblical Judea and Samaria to realize its historical rights and connections, punish the Palestinians for the perennial rejectionism, and put an end to the dangerous delusion that a tiny country in a toxic region can ever safely withdraw from an adjacent territory whose residents dream of its destruction. 
if expanding sovereignty can somehow be presented as according with democratic principles, so much the better, but if not, so be it. Ironically, the two opposing camps are both essentially prescribing a purported one-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Attractive though the idea of magical solutions may superficially sound in the current hopeless climate and after decades of bloodshed and deadlock, however, their one-state panaceas are no help at all. The one-state solution recommended by the extreme left means the demise of the world's only Jewish majority state, a sovereign entity to which the Jewish nation has a historical and by virtue of UN Resolution 181 in 1947 international legal right. The Jewish people, which knows better than most the perils of statelessness, is not about to give up the thriving modern state it has created in its biblical homeland. The one-state solution recommended by the extreme right requires being permanently intertwined with and ruling over millions of hostile Palestinians. It means the weakening, if not the collapse, of Israeli democracy, with Israel contorting itself to claim that it is not maintaining a racist and discriminatory regime in the contested West Bank, hemorrhaging international legitimacy and support, including among diaspora Jewry, divided from within and condemning itself to growing isolation and weakness. Although the one-state solution is no solution at all, the two-state solution is hardly smooth sailing either. Modern Israel's commitment, as specified in its Declaration of Independence, to stretch out its hand in peace to its neighbors has been rebuffed amid decades of conflict, its overtures most recently dismissed in 2008 when Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas walked away from an offer by Prime Minister Ehud Olmert that met almost all of the Palestinians' demands. Negotiations have failed over the division of territory, over the fate of Jerusalem, and over the Palestinians' unwavering insistence on a right of return for millions to Israel, an influx of refugee descendants that would destroy the Jewish state demographically. But push has come to shove in intermittent peace efforts. Former PA head Yasser Arafat and then Abbas have, in short, demanded both an independent Palestine alongside Israel and the right to return to Israel in Pal uh, the right to turn Israel into Palestine as well. Meanwhile, Israel, having captured the West Bank in the 1967 war, preempting Arab enemies who were certain that they were about to wipe us out has gradually cemented its hold on the territory with over 400,000 Jews now making their homes in the settlements, which reduces the viability of a future Palestinian state. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is now pushing to unilaterally annex those settlement areas and the strategic Jordan Valley too. These are fateful times for alleged solutions. The last few weeks before the U.S. moves fully into presidential election mode, and most other issues are marginalized or deep-frozen. While the Trump administration unveiled a plan in late January avowedly intended to serve as a basis for Israel-Palestinian negotiations with conditions for a potential Palestinian state, it has since proved spectacularly ambivalent about how its vision is intended to play out. Out of one side of its mouth, the administration seems to encourage Netanyahu to go ahead and annex the settlements in the Jordan Valley, and to hell with any prospect of negotiation. Out of the other, it specifies that the division of the contested territory needs to be negotiated. 
With a tweet, the unpredictable President Donald Trump could cut through the ambivalence and doom or endorse Netanyahu's gambit. But even the mercurial head of the world's most powerful nation cannot change the deeper realities at a stroke. And from Israel's point of view, one of those realities is that we cannot safely withdraw from the West Bank, not when the Abbas-led regime is an entirely unreliable entity, most recently to be found hailing a new era of cooperation against us with the Islamist Hamas terror group. Yet simultaneously, we have an existential necessity in separating from the Palestinians in order to retain an Israel with an overwhelming Jewish majority that accords equal rights to all its citizens. Quite the complex dilemma, but not one that is solved by embracing destructive alternatives. A two-state solution, the basis of that 1947 UN resolution relegitimizing Jewish sovereignty, is not viable today. So Israel needs to galvanize its military might, international diplomatic backing, and the internal resilience to protect itself against its regional enemies. It needs to follow policies and develop initiatives to boost more moderate forces in the neighborhood. It needs to eschew steps, notably including unilateral annexation that undermine its strategic goals of peace, security, robust global support, including maximal mainstream U.S. bipartisan backing and domestic cohesion. Yes, that all sounds so familiar and offers so little prospect of major progress in the short term. Too bad. Israel needs to be here for the long term. If working to create the climate that best serves that long-term interest is a painstaking process beset by setbacks, well, rather than the dangerous and defeatist embrace of facile quick fixes. To repurpose Winston Churchill's summation of democracy, this two-state solution remains the worst way of solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, except for all those other ways that have been raised from time to time. And next from JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, a political analysis piece, Israel may not top progressive agendas now, but tensions with the pro-Israel community will persist by Ran Compeyas, Washington. The Israel issue isn't necessarily toward the top of the progressive to-do lists at the moment, but that doesn't mean elements of the movement are any less at odds with the pro-Israel community. That was evident in an interview this week with uh, that the Democratic Socialists of America's New York City co-chairman, Sumathi Kumar, gave with the news site Kings County Politics. Here's the passage involving Israel. Kings County Politics. I noticed in the DSA questionnaire given to all local candidates looking for DSA support before this year's state races, that they were asked if they support divestment, sanctions, and boycott the State of Israel for their policies regarding Palestinians. Does the DSA support BDS as a policy plank? Kumar, the DSA is in favor of BDS and believes everybody has a right to their home. Obviously, in New York City, we don't have that much that we're doing around that here, but we have a national organization that focuses on international affairs. So, does the DSA support the existence of the State of Israel? I feel like that's not really relevant to this conversation. That's a tough stance to back in a country that's still overwhelmingly pro-Israel, 
but it's worth noting that not all progressives feel this way. Richie Torres, a progressive being backed by pro-Israel groups who secured the Democratic nomination last month in a Bronx congressional district, did not think the exchange made much sense. The leadership of the DSA declines to affirm that the state of Israel should exist, he said on Twitter. Insane is the word that comes to mind. On Wednesday night, four Democrats whose Israel positions riled the pro-Israel community, notably Senator Bernie Sanders, met for an hour-long conversation on YouTube and Israel never came up. Sanders, the erstwhile presidential candidate who has repeatedly angered the pro-Israel community for saying things like the United States should move money to Gaza from the funds earmarked for defense assistance for Israel, was joined by three progressives he is endorsing, Jamal Bowman of New York, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, and Cori Bush of Missouri. Bowman, in a recent primary, ousted longtime pro-Israel stalwart Elliot Engel and, like Sanders, said he would condition assistance to Israel. Tlaib, a Palestinian-American congresswoman from a Detroit-area district who just won her primary, believes in a binational one-state solution and backs BDS. Bush, in a primary, just ousted a longtime pro-Israel congressman Lacey Clay in the St. Louis area. She is expected to win the general election and would become the third House member to support the Boycott Israel movement, along with Slave and Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. In the event on the Sanders campaign's YouTube channel, each of the candidates told compelling stories about themselves and their constituents who had to overcome institutionalized adversity. Bowman, for example, described how his experience as a middle school principal informed his campaign. I approached education first and foremost as a teacher, school counselor, middle school principal, and then maybe like a social justice educator, he said. You know, it wasn't just about providing a quality academic environment. It was about social and emotional learning. It was about mental health. It was about interrogating the community and why certain communities lived in a concentrated poverty and others did not. The pro-Israel community may take some comfort in the absence of the mention of Israel, but as the Kings County interview shows, it should not. Compelling narratives of class struggle are what is winning elections for these candidates. And when their Israel-critical posture emerges, it will be inextricably woven into those narratives, in no small part because of the tendency of some pro-Israel activists to make enemies of these folks. Bush removed from her campaign website the page in which she, which she endorsed BDS. Still, Clay made it an issue. He went around, he sent around a mailer that highlighted her BDS support and his own pro-Israel record. Russell Nice, a St. Louis area Jewish educator and technologist, analyzed the mailing and said it went mostly to an area with large concentrations of Jews. Pro-Israel PACs uh, spent $1.5 million into a bid to defeat Bowman, a similar amount to defeat Sanders and millions in an effort to replace Omar, who faces a primary next week. The only thing protecting Tlaib from a similar onset, onslaught was her primary rival's associations with Louis Farrakhan, who has spewed anti-Semitic rhetoric over the years. How tightly the Israel postures of these progressives are tied to their appeal was evident in how Bowman celebrated this week when he learned that he had earned the endorsement of Barack Obama. Bowman told his followers on Twitter that he heard the former president endorsed him, in part after reading his letter to Avi Weiss and trying to address the longtime New York Jewish activists 
concerns about the candidates' Israel policies. He loved it, Bowman said. Notably, Weiss did not. And next from JTA. During the pandemic, Jews have attended virtual services, read scripture, or prayed less often than other Americans, and they have given charity and volunteered at higher rates. 80% of American Jews don't want special exemptions for houses of worship to reopen, essentially the same percentage as Americans as a whole and American Christians. Those figures come from a new survey by the Pew Research Center published uh, Friday. It found that 17% of American Jews had attended virtual prayer services in the last month, as opposed to 33% of all Americans and 49% of Christians. Before the pandemic, 61% of American Jews attended services in person with at least some regularity, as opposed to 57% of all Americans and 78% of American Christians. Many American congregations, including many synagogues, have transitioned to virtual services, but Orthodox Jews who attend services at the highest rates regularly cannot hold services on Shabbat online because of prohibitions on the use of technology. The survey found that 57% of Jews have donated to or volunteered with a charity during the pandemic, as opposed to 38% of all Americans. Over a third of Jews have helped friends and neighbors with errands and child care, essentially the same rate as Americans overall. In addition, 36% of American Jews have prayed at least weekly during the pandemic, and 20% have read scripture as opposed to 55% of Americans overall who have prayed weekly and 29% who have read scripture, uh, scripture weekly. Like Americans as a whole, large majorities of Jews have gotten through the pandemic by watching movies and TV, going outdoors, or talking to friends and family on the phone or via video. The study was conducted July 13 to 19 and surveyed 10,211 U.S. adults, including 250 Jews. The overall margin of error was 1.5%, while the margin of error for Jews was 8.8%. French police arrested the man who on Thursday took six people hostage at a bank and demand the release of Palestinian prisoners in Israel. The man is 34 years old and was identified in the French media only by his first name, Mehdi. He released all the hostages gradually on Thursday and surrendered himself to police. He was believed to be armed. Prior to his arrest, Mehdi told the media from the local branch of the BRED bank at the center of Le Havre, a coastal city located about 100 miles northwest of Paris, that his demands included Israel releasing Palestinian children unjustly imprisoned and allowing greater access to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. He has a history of both Islamist radicalism and of psychiatric problems, Liberation reported. In 2013, Mehdi had already taken four people hostage at another bank, CIC in Paris, demanding housing solutions for himself and his son, according to Lamond. General David Goldfein, who for a time was in line to become the first Jewish chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, has retired as Air Force Chief. Goldfein, 60, stepped down as scheduled Thursday, the Washington Post reported. James Mattis, the Defense Secretary in 2018, had tapped Goldfein to be the country's next top uniformed military official. 
in December, just as President Donald Trump was falling out with Mattis over the president's insistence on pulling U.S. troops out of Syria, Trump instead named Mark Milley, then the army chief, to the role. Mattis quit in January 2019. Goldfind was named to the top Air Force job by President Barack Obama in 2016. In June, Goldfine took the unusual step of issuing a declaration on the police killing in Minneapolis of George Floyd, calling it a national tragedy. It's official. A Dirty Dancing sequel is coming, and it's starring Jewish actress Jennifer Grey, who played Francis Baby Houseman in the 1987 original. Lionsgate CEO John Feltenheimer confirmed the news to Deadline on Thursday while keeping the plot secret. It will be exactly the kind of romantic, nostalgic movie that the franchise's fans have been waiting for and that have made it the biggest-selling library title in the company's history, he said on a company call according to Deadline. The site had reported on the rumor last month. Jewish filmmaker Jonathan Levine, known for helming for 50-50 in Warm Bodies, will direct. Gray, 60, will also executive produce the film. The original movie took place at a resort in the Borscht Belt, a vacation destination popular with New York Jews for decades in the mid-20th century, which has also been lovingly depicted in the hit show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. A poorly received prequel of sorts, Dirty Dancing, Havana Nights, was released in 2004. Uh, Washington. Joe Biden personally intervened to keep the word occupation out of the official Democratic platform, according to a new report. Foreign Policy reported Thursday that Biden intervened after pro-Israel groups appealed to him, citing three sources, including Jason Isaacson, the chief policy and political affairs officer at the American Jewish Committee. The question of whether to allow the text to refer to occupation or use the phrase end the occupation was taken to the vice president, and he said no, Isaacson told Foreign Policy. Prior to Biden's intervention, progressives in the party had secured agreement to include the word for the first time in the Democratic platform. Ultimately, the section on Israel included more robust language defending the rights of the Palestinians to a state. It also condemned the Boycott Israel movement. The platform included a number of victories for progressives on domestic issues, including closing the wage gap and climate change. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, whom Biden, the former vice president, defeated in the primaries, is working closely with Biden to shape party policies. A photograph said to be of Beirut's only synagogue shows minor damage to the interior of the 95-year-old building from a blast this week in the city. The image of the Muggen Abraham synagogue appeared Thursday on the page of a Facebook group called the Lebanese Jewish Community Council. Lebanon has no organized Jewish community and very few Jewish residents, if any. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you, as always, for listening.